What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. You were so hard to hold on to. Then every tear I cry, I start to realize I'll never get over you. I'm loving, I, right now I'm just loving the music. <laughs> I don't even want to start. Guitar is a great help. Yeah, hey? And, oh, you stopped playing. Okay, that's my cue. Welcome to episode 36 of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And for more information, you can always check out extensionmarketing.com. Sean McCann is a Newfoundland boy who grew up on the rock, eventually went on to become a founding member of one of Canada's biggest bands called Great Big Sea. The group had... Fun songs, some hit songs, big hits, and found amazing success selling millions of albums across Canada and around the world. Sean also found love, he had kids, and then eventually he hit rock bottom. So to take a paragraph from his website, because I thought the website, the about section, was just really beautifully written. John Lennon once sang, you can live a lie until you die. One thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. Now, Sean eventually left Great Big C, publicly admitting a secret past where he used alcohol to mask the pain of sexual abuse by a priest. With his boys, who I have to say are just amazing, two wonderful boys, and his wife, Andrea, who's become really one of my greatest friends, uh, he found the motivation to be able to face the truth, uh, to be able to look back and to overcome his demons. So today we're talking about that journey as a singer, a songwriter, a husband, a father, uh, and really most effectively right now, a public speak a speaker and a mental health advocate. And with him on all of these different trips and all these places that he goes, he always has with him Old Brown by his side. Old Brown is his guitar, and there's Old Brown right there, uh, who's actually made it in to the studio with us. Sean, it's great to see you. It's great to see you, amigo. Oh, like, and I I love it. I love that you brought the guitar. I think um, it's been with you for so long. Like, when you wrote your first song, I think, right? Yeah, it's my first guitar, and I I bought them uh, for $800 uh, at a little small place in St. John's called Davis Music. And at the time, Leanne, I didn't know how to play guitar. I was singing in bands, and I was being told what key to sing in by the guitar players and the accordion players and stuff. And I felt like it wasn't the right key for me sometimes, so I wanted my independence. So I bought this guitar as a, 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 it was an attempt to, to, to win freedom. But I didn't know how to play a single chord, and uh, and now I know all three chords. <laughs> and I can play in whatever key I want to do. So, uh, But this... He's been more of an instru- more than an instrument. He's, uh, he's really been a friend to me, like, um, you know, especially... Since I've made these big changes, which really cost me a lot of friends, quote unquote friends, this is the guitar that, uh, this is the friend that never left. And and that's how I, I, I feel about music now, uh, even though I've been involved in it for so long, it almost took me 30 years to figure out what the real reason for music is, and that is to help us, just like a good friend would. You know, because sometimes I, re- I would look at it like a security blanket, but it is, it's far more than that. Like to have, you know, Old Brown with you, it's not the security blanket. It's really kind of the keeper of everything for you. 
for me, it's where, you know, the truth can be a hard thing to face. And, uh, but I believe it's necessary to get anything productive done. Like if you want to solve a problem, you have to acknowledge it. But this is a weapon for deal for doing that, like dealing with difficult things. So yes, it is a security blanket. I always bring it well, no matter where I go, even if I don't play it because I want them around because I feel that friendship. But I know if, you know, if, if I need to do something, if I need to do the hard work, which is always based in the truth, and, and the thing we, we as humans we avoid the most, uh, this is the this is a way I can get in there and do that. We're gonna take a really interesting journey on this on this chat, and I'm I'm really grateful for you coming in because schedule is crazy busy. Even trying to keep up socially with when is Sean in town? Kids are a huge time. Uh, can you imagine that? So I I love this. We met actually in studio. You came to CTV Morning Live. Uh, it was the first time that we met. I like were you? I think you were going to be playing at the NEC. There was something that you were going to be that you were promoting. It may have been the Vets Guitars for Vets thing. No, that, no, that was like that was way out. I've been here a while. You, though, yeah. you haven't. So I, you guys were new to the city. I was doing a show, I guess. Yeah, and I came in and I met you, and I was yes. lucky. Sometimes you get lucky. You get okay. And I, we started talking, and. It was so funny because all of my co-hosts and everything, I'm like, does does Sean not remind you of Tony, my husband? And I was like, there was something very similar between the two of you. And yeah, she's well, very attractive as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let him know that you said that, Sean. Um, you know, like different backgrounds. I mean, Tony had a, a lot of the kind of the athleticism, not that you didn't, but like both still managed to kind of find your way into the arts. And I liked you. Like, I just like, oh, my God, you reminded me of Tony. And I'm like, we and you have two young boys who are the exact same ages. Uh, Keegan and Finn are exactly the same age as Andy and Jamie. And I'm like, OK, like this is going to be let's let's you're new to the city. Let's meet up. Let's get our families together. Let, let me introduce you to people in Ottawa. And then I realized that I had I had to pass the gatekeeper. You're like, <laughs> I had to pass the approval of Andrea, which didn't happen because we, you know, you, you kind of tweet person and you kind of message somebody. And then it wasn't until we were at the at the American, the ambassador's house. There was a, where there, you met Andrea, That's where right, I yeah. met Andrea and I got the clearance. It was like I met Andrea. She gave us the all clear. We passed through the gate. And from then on, it's been really Vicky quite nice. Vicky Heyman. Yeah, it was the Heyman. The prior, the prior yeah. ambassador. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was when we had when we when we wanted to be able to support and and follow up with our American. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Things were lighter I don't then. think we're going back to the ambassador. <laughs> I haven't been invited back. No, <laughs> no, no, no I'm too left. I'm too left-sided. Uh, and I, I value this friendship. I think it's been great. I love the fact that you and Tony actually have this kind of, this unique bond, I think, in just being able to talk from an artistic. Yeah, I, I'm always been uh, interested in the visual arts, and Tony's a great artist. And uh, so that struck me right away, his talent. But he, uh, he's very uh, astute with music. He's, uh, he, he listens to a lot of music mm -hmm. while he works. And every time we talk, it's, uh, sometimes it's about visual stuff, but generally he has a lot of questions about bands and music. Yeah. Like he's fascinated by it, which I find really interesting. And I think we both come from a hockey background, which is weird <laughs> to find ourselves in this situation. And I think, yeah. well, he's multi-sports, but... Uh, no, but you guys have that. We have a similar yeah. path, yeah, for sure. He's a good fellow. Uh, he understands are, me, I think. I think he does. I think he, he gets... I think he gets sometimes the torment, too, of, of, of creating something and then having it opened up to the world to see and kind of waiting for that approval or... You torment know, you, is a good word. Is torment a good word? Okay, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, but also surviving if you choose the life in the art. 
in the arts world and you, you know, commercially, how do you, how do you make a living, you know? And, uh, so not only do you surrender, you know, the better part of your heart to the, to the public, but you also have to find a way to, to earn money, you know? And, uh, and as a painter and as a songwriter, that's those, those particular mediums are under a lot of pressure in the technology, uh, advanced world mm-hmm. where we're you know our what we actually do monetarily has been devalued you know in, in many ways because it's uh so easily shared you know the the conversations around the dinner table have always been great andrea by the way your wife is the most amazing cook ever so anytime we're sitting around that island it's just we're it's in hard. for great great food and really good conversation and eventually the kids destroy the basement in some form of whatever game they're opting to play certain level of destruction <laughs> always hard to be uh, hard to be small in our house it's a it's a battle <laughs> there's different battles that are faced in the house and and one of the things when we first came over was uh do we bring do i bring a bottle of wine do oh, I, yeah, yeah. you know like i remember it kind of being like I, I i wasn't sure and because we were kind of socializing having i never knew you as the old sean mccann no, and probably I, you know, thing. like I have only known you in this uh, kind of like this, the next, the second phase of your life. And so it's interesting to kind of sometimes have to remind myself that there was a very different past to you. Yes. I mean, I, uh, there was a, the phrase used to describe me or relationships with my for my friends. And, uh, they would often say last night I got McCanned last night. <laughs> that was literally, a, I became a, what is that, an adverb? <laughs> so if you were out with me, you know, my former self, you, you were out late and you were going to be in, you're going to be damaged by the next morning. I was a pretty intense drinker and user of any kind of intoxicant. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, that was my life for 30, 35 years. So the changes were not small. So the person you see before you and the person you met was very different. I don't think at my core, I like, I think I'm similar in many ways, personality wise, but it was, a, it was a big thing to put down and, uh, and, uh, you know, and then you show showing up, but I'm okay with it now, like for whatever reason, and I can't even explain it, but I am not j- tempted by that. Like when you show up with a mm-hmm. glass of wine mm-hmm. or whatever, I just, you know, what, you know, reasonable drinking is not something I'm drawn to. Like, I just, I know that I can't be there. But I'm okay with you. Okay, let's let's go back, if we can, because we're kind of like this is where we are now, and this is this is wonderful, and there's friendships, and there's life, and there's stories to be told, uh, and it was a very different start. So you grew actually you grew up in Newfoundland. You were born you were born on the rock. I was born in Newfoundland, a little place called Carboneer, which you know is not is about is about two hours from St. John's, where I was eventually raised in the Catholic school system. And back there, like they, uh, there was the Catholic school board and what we call the Protestant school board, which is the all the other churches basically. And Newfoundland is uh, that was pretty much it, though. Like Newfoundland is pretty white, you know, and uh, Western. There, we didn't have many eth- ethnic diversity. Mm-hmm. It was Irish or English, Catholic, Protestant, and verses was very much part of it, on the hockey rink or in the churches. And uh, that's where I came up. That's where I grew up. Uh, siblings, like, was it a big household? I mean, two was... brothers, and I'm the oldest, so I started it out. Um, and there's a fairly big spread. Myself and my my first brother is ten months apart. That's called uh, Irish twins. Yeah, yes. 
And uh, my other younger brother is Kevin. He's in Halifax. Um, he's seven years younger. Okay, so there's a bit of a difference. Was you were active sports? Like, were you musically inclined as a kid? Like, did you enjoy singing? Were you drawn to music? Always Where were you drawn to? Because when you're on the rock, like, there's, I don't want to say there's not that much, you know, but you you find funds how, where? I, uh, well, we entertain ourselves, but early, like, when I was a kid, like, there's a recording of me singing. I was singing before I could walk. There's a recording of me singing the night that Patty Murphy died before I could walk, before I was two. Really? I was a talk, I would talk early. You could talk, okay, I could talk really early. Yeah. And singing was how I was always there. So there's all recordings of that. I got to find them and get them digitized. You actually, there's recordings of it. There's a oh, we so we pull cool. it out every Christmas to to listen to some of these things. And there, here's me singing Patty Murphy and the Wild Colonial Boy when I'm two years old. And apparently, I was, uh, you know, singing all the time, which is like Finnegan is like that. My son now, but when I got to grade kindergarten, grade one, uh, they knew I had some musical aptitude, but they put me in. Uh, piano lessons with the nuns which was a which kind of was which honestly and uh, i just it didn't work out (laughs) for me so after one year of that i stopped so i didn't really learn how to read music and um again i didn't pick up a guitar until i was 23 so i was you know i i went down a different path i think i think it's what i've learned is if you want to go down the path of music if you want your children to the best thing is not force them to do anything or the best thing you can do is find someone who's actually a leader, a mentor. And the best teachers I've found are the ones that ask their students, what do you want to learn how to play? And when, when you know what you want to learn how to play, mm-hmm. you will play it. But did you know, but you didn't know you wanted to learn how to play until you're in a band and they're telling you to sing a certain key and you're like, I, I need to go figure out how to learn guitar. Like, had you been given the option at 10 to say, Sean, would you, you know, would, I you think have said, so. I, would I have liked to, you would have. I think I would have been more interested in that. And, uh, you know, all that uh, hockey was like the main Canadian religion anyway, so that's where we all gravitated to. But I really regret not having put in some extra time then. Like, uh, that wasn't seen as a viable or uh, important thing, you know. And I've come to learn that for not financial reasons, but mental health reasons, like music is a huge. I wish I had more of it when I was under the duress and. You know, for the bad times in my teenage years, I didn't have access to music then in the sense that I could play it or sing it. Mm-hmm. I was in full hockey mode and uh, I could listen to it, and but I, I didn't really know what it was about. I didn't get involved with it until I was 19, 20, 21. So it wasn't like you were listening to what lyrics, the, the songwriting or the lyrics of a song or anything that would... Maybe, like I remember you, but... uh, listening to Pink Floyd, The Wall. That's the first record that I really was drawn into. And uh, and in retrospect, I can see why. But the lyrics, I remember, uh, I I could I related because it was you know it was at, at the time you know when I was in having a, a really hard time, and I could relate to those things. And I started to have the inkling that music was more important than than I knew. When you talk about you know going through a rough time and, and the dark the dark days, uh, from when you were growing up at what age like you were you were Sundays at church every you were, Sunday you were every Sunday at church and the church important in the household like yeah in particular our, I think we were Catholics were we were not lapsed not lazy Catholics we were at you know every every Sunday and 
my family had a history with the church, which I've, I've been working on a book with Andrea, and I've digging into this. My great-great-uncle was the first new bishop that came from Newfoundland to be a Newfoundland bishop. And my uh, my mother's family, her parents worked for the church, for him. Uh, a lot of them did. So my family lived in the shadow of the church probably more than most. We were literally in their house. And those people, uh, those priests and those bishops, they had extreme power um, back in the day. And, and, and that extended to when I was a kid. But, but I'm trying to figure out how what happened to me, you know, how the abuse was overlooked or how it could even exist. Like, we seem to have opened our eyes to it. It's a different generation with the Me Too generation and the many, uh, the many horrible things that the Catholic Church has now admitted to and they're trying to hold accountable to. They've done a, job, a poor job of being accountable. But at least now we know what can happen. Well, I think there's been a media, there's been a media base to it. There's been storytelling. There's been exposés. There's been movies, uh, which I think help. I think the an outsider understand like how widespread it was and how it was so well hidden. Yeah, the, it was it was systemic, you know, and uh, and I believe that you know, I. It's a really hard subject in my family, and, for, and it's hard for me to poke around here, and uh, I'm having a hard time with the book that way. You mean way. poking around to write this book? To figure out, like, what I'm trying to figure out. I know what happened to me, and I know what the repercussions were and the, and the, and the damage and stuff. But I was, what I keep trying to look for, and I guess it's typical of many victims, is why? How? And Because uh, my parents were not unreasonable people. They were smart people, right? But I think that indoctrination is a dangerous thing. Because you you spoke out, you mentioned it to your parents, like when you had said something's happening. I had said you... it in a song, you know, I said it in Hold Me Mother, and then I said it, you know, then after a couple of months of that song sinking in, and I said it, but honestly, it, it's not something my parents wanted to hear about. Even how, if it was true. How old true. were you when you were able to say it out loud to your parents? Oh, that was in uh, that was five years ago. <laughs> that was I'm I'm fifty one, so I was forty five, forty six. Like you know, whenever "Hold Me Mother," that record came out, that's how I thought I I thought it was pretty clear in that song. But people don't people don't want to hear truth that they don't want to hear. You know. So, in as it was happening, as you were a child in your teenage years going through this experience, there was no speed. There was Oh no, that was, was impossible for me to, uh, there was no, I couldn't see a way. I didn't, this was just something I was gonna bury as a secret. I didn't think this was gonna go over well and I don't think I was wrong. It didn't go over well when I was 46, you know? Uh, and I think that's why, in, I think, that's why indoctrination is so dangerous because it's what it what it does is create a sense of there's no freedom to question. The truth is not important when you're indoctrinated. A truth, our version of the truth, which in in the Catholic Church is the priest has all the power. You don't question the priest. The priest is God. You know. So what do you do when God commits a crime? At what age did the did the abuse start for you? Fifteen. And it lasted until you were able to get like I mean. Yeah, it lasted a little while, but it, it you know it all kind of happened. Started on a 
retreat uh, pilgrimage to Rome, which is where, you know, my first drink was served to me by this priest. And the abuse happened on that uh, that trip. And uh, it didn't last long after that. I mean, the, emotionally it was even worse. But I, I was just, uh, it was something that really couldn't, still can't really figure out. <laughs> but it was... It was something I chose to bury. It was a truth that that I really couldn't handle. And I think a lot there was a lot of shame. But this priest had endeared himself to me and to my family. And what hurt most was we, we looked at him as a friend. We he was he was my brother. He was a second father. He was a son to my father. The betrayal was intense. And uh, that's what hurts that's what hurts the most today. Is still the betrayal, like of a person that you had looked at as a friend or as a father figure, or I was groomed to, you know, and I was built up. And my, you know, my at the time I, when I was in started high school, I was bullied, so I was vulnerable anyway. And I think that's what these people do. They look for vulnerable people. I was a smart kid. I was a good kid, you know, and um, but he. He was attracted to me, I guess, or whatever, but he was, he, you know, I was, it was premeditated in retrospect. And it just, it just hurt, hurt, it hurt an enormous amount and it still hurts. So the problem I have is how do you cope with it when you just, when it hurts so much? And a coping mechanism uh, is booze. Did you start to drink after that? I mean, I started to drink with him. Uh, he started me uh, drinking, but I never stopped. I mean, he uh, he went away eventually, but I just kept. By the time I finished high school, I would I would argue that I was an alcoholic, and that my future was uh, very much different than what it would have been if I had if all that hadn't happened. The drinking for you wasn't that you were constantly in search of um, of a drink. It, it it was more when you when you had the drink, it was and it, it was excessive yeah i mean i would drink a lot i could uh stop i mean i could function i was a highly functioning alcoholic because but i always knew i'd have all kinds of opportunities and free drink and I'd be, you know great big c was a you know it was a party band and it wasn't an act you know like we, <laughs> we drank <laughs> i drank the most for sure uh okay but, well when did when did great big c like when did that when did the musical aspect of because i get that the the party continued especially with this band like at what age were you when that started to form like you're the band the the music that this was going to be something that you could do for a living well in high school i played hockey at the high school hockey which was a big thing in back then so i played defense and i was i was pretty good i was never really super competitive, but I was good enough to make the team all the time and dependable. Uh, when I got to university, though, um, I ended up doing a... F- I, I wasn't good enough to be junior. I wasn't that good, so I ended up... I have had no athletic thing, and music started to come in. I ended up doing a philosophy degree. I was I was, I was was searching then for reasons uh, yeah, why. Yeah, looking <laughs> The reason I went into that is because I could ask freely ask questions and really... Ta- dig into why why the big whys which you know is good and bad because what i've learned uh, unless you have a faith that explains it for you you know um 
There is no answer. There was nothing you were going to find in a textbook? No. So, or there was no wise professor that could give you that answer? Well, there's no right why yeah. for any, I don't believe for anything. And that's the problem with organized religion in my mind, like in an indoctrination is because it's like here, it preys on people who are, hey, we need answers. We, we can't live this life because we don't know what happens after it. Why are we here? And religions have come up with the answers to those impossible to answer questions, in my opinion. But at least pursuing a philosophy degree, I became somewhat con comfortable with the fact that there really wasn't a right answer to anything like that. And there was a million ways to think about it. So I learned how to think, you know, which is good and bad, I guess. Uh, but I also, to replace probably the the hockey thing that I was you know, you know, yeah, you went, from, like, you went from being uh, at the rink all the time to not making a team in university. And then you're left with. Yeah. And I'm doing time. a philosophy degree. Right. So all I did, you know, I, I wasn't under the math uh, deadlines. I abandoned that language and I had all kinds of I found myself in pubs and in St. John's working in bars in St. John's. Um, I would argue, well, it has the most bars per capita, so that's easy, but it also has a really strong music scene been known for it for a year and not just traditional music rock and roll reggae blues uh it's the kind of place where a lot of artists wash up and stay international artists british guys irish guys all kinds of great singers so we i fell into that i mean i and, and as i mentioned like at the age of two it was like music went away for a while but then i had it i was able to sing and i was asked to sing i used to sing at parties which were all every every night and i and i was able to sing in key and it was approached bob asked me to sing in his first band and that was rankin street that turned into our first little band and uh i loved it i was like yeah i can do this i'll do this instead you know and i've always had a lot of energy and uh, so ended up being the kind of the uh the the agent or ma manager of that little band and we used to play five nights a week in all these bars we had no shortage and we used to make a hundred dollars each a night which was a ton of money then and uh, you know what's the strange thing it's the same now it's still 100 bucks a night. It hasn't changed in 35 years. You invested You invested well. Plus, I would take it free booze while you're on stage. Free and there you go. And, and, you're, and, and, you're and girls would yeah. be seeing us under the yeah. lights. And, you know. You look good under those lights, right? Well, yeah. depending on the lights, I think. But there you go. So you're playing your way through university. Yeah, and I made you're enough money to pay money. off my loan. Yeah. You're making money. You're playing music. And you're partying hard. Constantly, every night. Did you graduate with a philosophy degree? Did I you did. actually? You graduate. What was the what university? At Memorial University of St. John's. Is that the big university out there? Yeah, and it yeah. is pretty big. I think yeah. it's like eighteen thousand students there. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. So and it's it, it only opened in the seventies, so it's not been around a long time. But it's um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how its rates university was. I think it has a strong medical school. <laughs> I don't know about the philosophy <laughs> department. I have no idea how it would rate. I don't know how I would rate as a philosopher, but it put me on a path. And um, Although I, I have to say, because I know you're a big reader, uh, yeah. you read a lot. And I would think that that's still, it follows that there, there was an actual, like an innate interest in it because it still is with you. You're still constantly reading. Yeah, I don't like, I, I'm, I'm always drawn to the hard questions too, right? Like I want, I do, I don't like, I don't read light stuff. So a philosophy was a good fit. But I mean, that whole scene um, of being a philosophy student, if you're a songwriter, you're a philosophy student. So, and that's where I ended up being. I mean, for, I thought I'd be a lawyer. Like, part of me argued that 
if at a philosophy undergraduate degree was a was not a bad degree to have because it taught you how to think and you could if you want to go into the law profession. But I, I'm glad I, I'm glad that didn't happen. <laughs> so I ended up you know being a songwriter, which is far far more risky, but you'd probably do a lot less damage. When did the pairing with uh, Alan uh, and Great Big C then occur? Well, Bob and I uh, were in this band called Rankin Street with Daryl. Found Daryl at a, at the Rose and Thistle Pub, which is a small bar. And Daryl was uh, he was a good guitar player, but he also knew every song like he was a human jukebox. And he was a real nice guy, and we hit it off. We used to uh, we used to enjoy <laughs> having having a drink together, among other things. And uh, and I'll leave that at that. But uh, he would get McCann with you. He would get McCann. He was he was the early early on getting McCann, and uh, arguably I got Daryl a few nights too. And uh, so we got it. All, we got along really well, myself and Daryl, for sure. And um, we wanted to be in a band, and you know, so we, we kept at it. But our we weren't that we weren't that good. Like we weren't good at, with the audience. We weren't. We all wanted to play. We were we were focused really on the traditional music, and we could only get so far because there were so many traditional bands. And we eventually just ran out of gas. And we're like, okay, well, we all finished our degrees, and I went on and started doing a master's in folklore, which was really boring. And um, but while I was doing that, I kept my eye on, the, on what was happening in Newfoundland, and, and bands started to get signed by record companies. Uh, I think the first one was Ron Hines, the Irish Descendants got signed, Ashley McIsaac, okay. Rankins, yeah. like, and yeah. there were all these Celtic bands, and we were like, we just quit at the wrong time because we were good, like we were as yeah. good as them, arguably. And uh, so I was always out, and I started doing solo stuff because I couldn't put the guitar down once I figured it out. And I happened to go, I left a gig I was doing at a bar called Nautical Nellies, walked across the street to the Rose and Thistle where I met Daryl mm -hmm. five years earlier. And Alan Doyle was in a band called Staggering Home, uh, Staggering Home. And it was with a, another guy named John, I can't remember his last name, but they were doing a, like a McLean and McLean show. It was a blue, it was a comedy parody music show. So there's two comedians essentially, Alan being one and John the other guy, Two guitars, doing a lot of shtick. It was blue in nature, but also parodying uh, like Sesame Street songs. But in so there was blue. a personality oh, there, yeah. right? Which is what you, between the three of you that were kind of the music and kind of just being really good, there was a personality uh, with Alan that. Yes, and uh, there was uh, a draw there. There was no one. The bar probably had six people in it, and yeah. I know one of those. One there was two tables. One of them was his mom and dad and his sister. And um, so the place was empty. I was there on my break to get away from the bar I was at, which was full at the time. And I just wanted to get out of there because there's no dressing room or anything. But I walked in and I and, the, and the, he was doing the show, honestly, like he was in Wembley. Like he had no sense of proportion. That there were only six people in the Didn't audience. care. Didn't care. He was transported. He was and he had he was one of those few, very few people who had enough sense. He brought his own lights in because all these bars didn't have lights. And I had figured this out. But most bands played in the dark. They really didn't, weren't paying attention to what it looked like. Alan was, like he lit himself up, and um, you know played. You know, and I could see right away. It's like this guy uh, wants the attention. And if you're in a band, that's a huge asset to have. And they're rare. Like they're, you know, they. They're, Do most people in the band just want to be in the band? Most people just want to be. Yeah, it's really not everyone. You know, uh, wants to be the front man. 
uh, or the front woman. Uh, not, a, not Most people are not able to. And, and a lot of the ones that are able to do that, that have a, a real extrovert personality that, re, that really want that attention, they're probably not good enough singers or players, you know, but Alan had, was good enough and on all those levels. So, you know, a lot the great bands have them, you know, Steve Tyler, Mick Jagger, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying Alan is as good as those two guys, but he is that guy. Mm -hmm. um, and he is quite good. And we were lucky to find him. And, but I, uh, so I talked to him and I knew that if, if we had that, I knew what we were missing. And I sensed that he could fill that hole. And, um, uh, you know, I could go on at length about the pros and cons of mm -hmm. that type of person. Yes. But uh, we'll let it rest that he, he, was a, he, was, he was the man for the job. And without him, we wouldn't have been Great Big C, without a doubt. And uh, How he did was you, a missing piece. You approach him when he's finished his performance with six people in the bar and lights on him. How did that formation then happen? And how did, like, the name, like... I mean, it's, it's catchy, right? People, you mentioned Great Big C, people know it, and there's always a catchy song that they'll sing with it. Yep. How was that? What was the start of that? Like, who came up with the name? Well, we didn't first, because Bob had left and he was gone, but myself and Daryl and Alan had a jam. I said, well, like, I, I'm trying to, f I think we should jam together and see what this is, because he was all, he wasn't from the traditional world at all. He was doing, like, 80s covers. Like, that was, he was a rocker, rock and roll, uh, 80s rock and roll. And um, so that was a good influence to have. So we, 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 you know, we had a party one night and jammed and figured out what we could do together. I think one of the first songs we learned together was Lovers in a Dangerous Time. It's a good song. Yeah, and we learned the Bare Naked Ladies version of that. Okay, that, that's yeah, what I, was know, big I know, at the yeah. Time. So I think that was the first song we learned. Uh, and that came from his repertoire. And we taught him a traditional song, which was probably Mary Mack or something, or Patty Murphy. So, but, you know, when we played it together, we were like, wow, one of one thing, first thing happened was everything got faster. And the other thing we were able to do was sing. Like I could, we had a harmon, a natural harmony, mm -hmm. uh, which were important in Newfoundland. So, so that worked, you know, we, we, the, musically it worked. And then we just had to do a show. Our first name for the band was Best Kind, Best Kind, which is a Newfoundland, Newfoundlandese for, we're pretty good. <laughs> really? Say it again. Best kind, really. Best kind. Everything in Newfoundland, you'd say, how are, how are things going? How are you? And you would answer, best kind. Okay. Um, as in, I'm fine. I'm fine, or I'm, I'm good, fine. yeah. I'm okay. Yeah. And we did a couple of shows at the Rose and Thistle, which, again, the Rose and Thistle holds about 50 people. This is a small place. And I've had at least 300 people tell me they were at those shows. So I'm sure they weren't. But uh, we did a couple of shows, and, and we were instantly labeled as St. John's Supergroup because of Rankin Street was a popular band. And now that we had Alan, like we were all going to be, so it was Rankin Street and Staggering Home. And they had their little following too, I guess. And uh, and then Bob came back. Uh, we were doing a talent show opening up for the Irish Descendants. And he got up on stage with us and played the fiddle at the time. or the Yeah, the fiddle. And, um, and then it just, okay, we can do this. Like we're as good as anyone else is getting record deals. So let's, let's make a record. So we made a record and we were so, by then we'd learned, I guess myself and Bob had learned a lot about what could go wrong because we'd spent four years in a band together that didn't go anywhere. So we're like, what do we need? We need a record. Why? Because we need to give it to a record company guy to get a record deal. Okay. So we did. And we, we did a, a few gigs and used the money to make a record called, which was the Great Big C record. And, 
you know, we had that in our hands before we started to play as Great Big C. We had, we had a plan. We had a two-year plan. We sat down with my dad, who, who stood up with like a, a, a Bristol board mm -hmm. or whatever, and here's what we're going to do. Because he was concerned that I would waste my life in this pursuit. But he was willing to give me, or he advised us, like, give it two years, and if you get to these, these are your goals. And we set out, and that's how we organized. We were organized. We weren't the most sober bunch, but we were. We had goals, and we were determined. And that's why we were successful, because we were all determined, and our eyes were focused on the same goal. How many years did you find this great, fun success? Like, how long were you kind of feeling like I'm living the life right now? I'm happy, like, happy in terms of not yet facing demons, but you're high productive, your songs are doing well, you're making money, you're touring, uh, and let's just say the... You're, you haven't overdrank yourself yet. Were there uh, a couple of years? Like, was there a... The first, you know, the first 10... Before Daryl left, there was a different... Uh, and, and, you know, it, it ended, you know... Daryl left when he needed to leave. But it was just... We had a good... We, our energy at the beginning was so positive and so infectious that that's why we were successful. People just like being around you guys. You were fun. We were fun, and we were we were we weren't particularly good, but we had a super energy. And our you know we were like uh, our approach was we couldn't we weren't very good players. Like we didn't have a Ashley McIsaac. We didn't have a someone who was a, a no none of us were excellent. Like we didn't have a star player. We could sing, and we had but we had this energy. So we approached traditional music like the Ramones. You know we had that kind of really simple but fast energy, energy, energy. And that's what singled us out from the polished groups like mm -hmm. Natalie McMaster or the Rankins and stuff. Like they are all really good players, way better players. But we proved that that wasn't all there was. We had something else. We were, we were interesting. We were a little bit dangerous too. Like we were, you know, if if you flirted with us, we we'd, we'd be out with we'd be there. <laughs> like <we'd> go, <laughs> we were out for that. We were up for whatever. You know, uh, we put it all out there. We had nothing to lose. So there was a real recklessness about the band, you know, and uh, which is attractive, I guess, in retrospect. But that, you know, once you, as soon as you get successful and when you have money in the bank and and things aren't risky anymore, that's when you get become kind of settled, you know. There's that's the enemy of art in many ways. The lack of hunger this is the worst thing that can happen for a songwriter or a painter, I think, because you're not driven. You're not out there like the wolf hunting, you know, for that next great idea you could become uh, complacent which is what we did how many years though did you have of a good run that you would say that it was out there was energy you weren't complacent yet you were having how many years this podcast is brought to you by extension marketing they are a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business I can speak to this personally, as I've been using the extension marketing team to help me launch and grow my business. Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com. I would say to be, you know, consistently on, you know, while we were pulling the same, the sled the same mm -hmm. way, and I would say that's the first decade. And after the after the first decade, when Daryl left, that was, you know, that was more damaged than we at the time realized. You know, um, 
And How? it was it was a hard, it was you know we we in many ways we financially we we started to really focus on that part of the thing of the thing and the machine and how to make the most money but ultimately artistically our our output went down and what know. how was the, your drinking at that point oh it was you know i i graduated from drinking pints to drinking really expensive scotch because i could afford it i remember being there's a bar in st john's that i kind of became the unofficial owner of i think and uh called the duke and i remember being out one night and I was drinking Lagavulin or some expensive scotch, and, and uh, someone was someone was like, asked me how much are they anyway, and I looked at the actual owner Terry, who's a great fella, a funny guy, and uh, I said Terry, how much are these? <laughs> and he said, Sean, he just laughed. He said, what What do you care? <laughs> you don't care. You've never asked that question. You've been drinking here for ten years. You don't know, and I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> You don't Just, need to know. You don't need to know. <laughs> exactly. Are you um, are you married? Like, have you met Andrea at this point yet? Like, no, no, I didn't okay. meet her until, uh, well, I guess it was just shortly after that, though. It was the, the second half of the, so it was at the beginning of, uh, You've in some ways. You had a decade my, run of being on your own and. Things were kind of changing, but we were still, I mean, even then, you know, we were still able to, I mean, my songwriting was improving slowly. What were you writing about that it was improving? Uh, more about, I think, concepts. Not so much about drinking. You weren't, you weren't and, writing yet the types of songs that you wrote. No, like, that, I mean, that, I that, that That took years to develop. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we got away with a lot on very little as far as songwriting clout. We had some hooky stuff, but it didn't say much, you know. And no, but it was catchy. I mean, catchy. your songs went on when people, when the bar wanted to kind of get everyone riled up. You know, you put on a great big C and everyone's jumping up and down. And I know, know but that's and, brand. Uh, what do you call it? Cross pollination. Like we were, what were we selling though? We were selling beer. We were selling a good time. Mm -hmm. And we wrote songs that sold a good time. So we were a great, I mean, liquor companies and breweries were, loved us. Newfoundland tourism loved us. You know, and we had a very strong and very simple brand. And it's a brand that doesn't allow for anything negative, really. Like, we don't, there was no darkness in any of our lyrics. It was all positive, positive, positive. Everything's cool. You're okay. I'm okay. There's no problems here. Just have a pint and we'll all be good. And here we go. And every night, you know, and... Uh, you almost can try to believe it in a sense. You can, well, that's what we were selling, yeah. you know, and... Uh, and uh, and quite believably, and I guess maybe for a long time I wanted to believe that, but that's not the reality. And, you know, um, there was no room for the reality, you know, what, what we were selling, there was no room for actual reality in that, in that, uh, in that product, you know. So once you, when you started to dig into that stuff, like, you know, let's, let's allow for the darkness, that was not going to happen in that band or that brand. No, it couldn't. No, it's not what people were buying. It's not what Warner Brothers wanted to hear. It's not what the band wanted to hear. But I was writing those things. I started to kind of like Andrea, having met her in Colorado, was a game changer in many ways because I started to, you know, I had a person, I'd found the right person in my life that I could talk to her about anything. So Andrea's from Minnesota. She, she is. was kind of finding herself in Vail. Is it in Vail that you guys met? Yeah. I know it was a ski town. Yeah. She, she was coming out of a divorce and some family issues of her own, so so we were kind of well suited, I guess. Yeah, and I think she, I, in the in the midst of it, didn't really quite realize where where she was going. 
I think she thought she wasn't quite sure the address or wherever it was that I, you had like said many you Americans, lived. <laughs> her Canadian geography was not strong, so yes. she thought she was going to Finland, I believe. Yes, yes, that was it. She thought she went to Finland and then ended up at the tip yeah, of and, Canada and Newfoundland instead. Which really, there hasn't. There's not a whole lot of difference. There's more money in Finland. They they have less <laughs> provincial debt for sure. <laughs> she she finds herself, you know leaving behind her life to move to the rock you have two kids you know well you have you have keegan and then you have finn um we had a lot of fun before they came <laughs> you did but you you did there we was this movie, like, like three years i think yeah before we uh i don't know how, how how keegan came about i don't know how that happened but um i'm really glad it did you know change that was another big change you were still though drinking heavily it was i was yeah it you know uh which is fun at first in a relationship you guys can go and have fun and do anything and then when do you think andrea started to go "Hmm, this isn't quite as normal as us just having a good time and then adulting after you know yeah i think well you have to ask her i guess but so so i think three years in is when keegan's came to be and uh you know, there's a pattern behavior now. Like I, my level of drink, if you're an alcoholic, you don't really realize or want to realize about what level you're at. And um, I think she may have realized like, oh my goodness, what have, what have I entailed here? What, you know, this guy is, a, he's not going to stop. <laughs> you know, he's not going to change. Um, and I think that is, you know, if you're not an alcoholic, that's not an appropriate way to live. So I think she struggled with that. I was gone a lot, so she was home alone. We ended up getting dogs, which were great. And living things came into my house, and um, she had a positive thing. But, I, you know, she decided she wanted she wanted to have kids. And then when the kids came, then the drinking became an issue. Like, it became, you know, our lifestyle. As you know, we, this is this is uh, not something, this lifestyle and have and being a parent, that doesn't work. You can't be an, a good parent and be an alcoholic. But your alcoholic was like major benders. Like you could yeah. go, like it wasn't like you would go and then it was just a constant. Like you you would go missing. I would go, you know, well, I was gone on the, if I was on the road, mm-hmm. which was every second month for a month. So gone half the time, more or less, or 40% of the time. You know, I had, I could have my benders there and it didn't affect very much. I arguably, I would think it made no difference. It probably helped the show in many ways, you know, like it wasn't, it was just, that was expected. That was part of the job. That's what people wanted to see and people paid to see. Uh, But coming home, like uh, I was, you know, I was the leader of a kind of a party parade. Like in St. John's is full of artists and a lot of them drink a lot. So when I came home, I'd be dad, I'd be a good dad for till Friday night. (laughs) And then, then if I, if I came in contact with a few of my buddies who may or may not have been dads, like once we got going, there was no off switch. So the problem was I could, I could, I could kind of control when I started, but once I started, there was no off, there was no stop. So if I had one drink, it was going to go until there was no drinks left every time. So that became, and that, you know, obviously became an issue. Did you have any fear having children? I mean, with, um, of wanting a certain relationship with your child, of wanting, 
uh, of protecting them a little bit more than maybe I think you felt you were protected? Like when you became a father, was there a reflection on what had happened in your own childhood? Like was it was it a, in the back of your mind at all? I don't think at first. I think um, I think I was kind of blown away, and I was on underprepared, you know. And I still remember when Keegan came out, uh, you know, and he was joined us here. I'm like, oh my goodness! The, what I realized: this is a relationship that will last forever. I will always be his father. He will always be my son, and that was the first big revelation because I'd never had that relationship before. There's nothing other than death. There will be nothing that'll change how we. That's that is our relationship, you know. Marriages can end, but a, a father to a son, you will until you're dead. You're always going to be my son. So that that really hit me hard. It's like okay, I'm now in a permanent relationship. This is it, and uh, I have responsibilities. And I would argue that I was always I I met my responsibilities, you know, to a point. Uh, but it's only as he grew older, as I as I sobered up, to get to your point, that's when I started to really focus in on that. Like, how do I protect him from from what I know to be out there? And I think one of the first things I, you know, they were they certainly weren't baptized. They they they'll never suffer from indoctrination. They'll never. So I had, but my you know my parents are still Catholics. They're still religious people regardless of what happened to me that they know and uh, it hasn't changed anything there but so they don't and as indoctrinated people what I notice is you just you just don't if you, you, you fail you're kind of tunnel vision you fail to see any possibilities you you, you have a comfort default most, and I don't have that oh, yeah I know that but most people have a comfort default in general in life you know you have your comfort level and then you just for 90% of the population I feel they have a comfort default and they settle and they don't deal with and they mask things. Uh, and that's why I find for you to have given up and realized you had to make a massive change. When, when did this happen? You got like, cause this is really the turnaround of, of this new life that you have. What, what was rock bottom? Like there, there has to be right there. There's always got to be some, I would think, I don't know. I haven't been in this situation trigger. The when I st when I turned forty, so when I was like forty one, forty two, I started to have blackouts. Right, so so by then I I drank enough, obviously, and they were scary, right? But I I ignored them. I'm like, what you know, I don't really. Uh, uh, they won't always happen, you know. But they started to happen, and uh, as terrifying as they were, I was in incapable. I still couldn't, you know, press the stop button, and and, and I still let myself start. And I was in denial. I was an alcoholic. I was in denial. And uh, eventually that that's where the bottom was hit. That That is what cost me. Um, that's what brought me out. Because one of those blackouts put me in um, a compromising position. It was it, it threatened our marriage directly because I was um, in I, I was what's I cheated. I was in, in infidelity is the word I'm looking for. And it was during a blackout, and I'll have to, I take responsibility for it, and um, it was a heartbreaker, you know. Like it was, uh, I knew I knew what I was going to lose, 
And at the time, I didn't even remember what, what had happened, which is ridiculous. And, and it all came to a head, you know, when I, when I admitted it. And I said, you know, I don't know what actually happened, but I'm pretty sure something bad happened here. And I told her. And we were at the, uh, our island in our house in Newfoundland in the kitchen. And it was the hardest thing, you know. And I, um, I often joke about it now. I don't joke about it, but I. People, people always ask. You know, how did you quit drinking? How did you finally stop? And um, I always say I embrace my higher power. You know, and uh, November ninth, two thousand and eleven. I had a com I told this tr told Andrea the truth, like the real truth, and uh, and I knew I could lose her, and I almost did. But the deal was the ultimatum was you you put that drink down now, that drink, and you might have a chance, but that's the last drink you'll ever have. That one, and it was I was drinking a, a glass of white wine, <laughs> so you know. I put it down, and she had some thinking to do. She went off uh, to Montreal to just kind of decide what she was going to do about this. But it was, you know, it was a really gutting conversation, and she knew she knew what my issues were, and maybe that's what saved me. Maybe that's why she's still here. But I, I bought all brown, and I, maybe this is I can sing you. This is a song. This is essentially word for word the conversation we had never saw it coming happened so fast hit me like a headstone over broken glass water is rising hard to breathe one good reason is all I need Look out the window Touch the pain Every raindrop Calls out your name See the clouds rolling Across the sky I feel like I'm broken I don't know why you were so hard to hold on to With every tear I cry I start to realize I never get over you I remember every minute I remember the day when I had to admit it and our world blew away that sinking feeling down on my knees heart revealing a home in need you were so hard to hold on to with 
With every tear I cry, start to realize I'll never get over you. Stop looking over your shoulder for someone you won't find. I guess we gotta get over ourselves sometimes. So tell me a story and throw me a line. I'm tired of keeping track of your lies. I feel like I'm falling into black. Give me one good reason and I'll come back. You were so hard to hold on to. every tear I cry start to realize I'll never get over you I guess that's why all brown's here um, so I can remember those really horrible times and share them in a way that might make sense but I can tell you that was a there's two ways I, that we look at that date, that 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 day, that pivotal day. That's the day I, I never had a drink since. It's been almost eight years, and uh, and I remember that as in some ways it's a positive thing. It's the day I quit drinking and changed my life and and woke up again and started to do the work. But it's also a, a, a terrible day to remember in the sense it's almost the day we 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 got divorced. You know, it was a horribly painful day for us both, for especially for Andrea. Who's still here? Yeah, and she's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky. I'm like, very lucky. Because I've been around that kitchen table with you guys and seen the family and seen the joy in that house and seen this wonderful relationship that plays back and forth off of each other. And I can't imagine it, it not being there. But what you just said is that was when you had to start the work. And I think for a lot of people listening to this, this is their this is the critical kind of take for from it the work <laughs> that work that there. day the work is the work and can you take us through what that's like because there are people who are so scared to start it um who are terrified of the amount of work that it's going to take like what were the steps i mean yes that glass of white wine was put aside and you haven't touched it but the real work then Beget, beget. I mean, you had someone that was going to stick by you, but there was a lot of internal turmoil that had to be realized. Well, yeah. Well, people, there are people, people drink and use drugs for reasons, you know, and it's a coping mechanism. And, you know, what happened to me after three months of sobriety? Well, the first thing that happened is I lost pretty much every friend I ever had because they were all big drinkers. They were all, we were of a kind. They were part of the scene, you know. So I was alone. I had Andre and, and the boys and our dogs, but I was, I didn't really have any, my phone stopped ringing, you know, in St. John's. And after about three months, I started to remember how I started to drinking, who poured me my first drink, you know. And uh, I remembered what the priest did and 
why I drank and and I started to have nightmares about that. And I never um that was that was really hard and I didn't have the booze or the drugs to to kind of take that pain away. So the pain that I'd subdued for thirty years was very present. And uh it was really hard not to drink then. But that's when old Brown came into play. At this point, had you been able to vocalize it? And Only speak to it Andrea. Out? Andrea knew, and I think that's why she stayed. She knew I was damaged, you know, but she was the only person I've ever told. And I think that's why she uh, showed mercy, you know, or stuck with me. But in that, at that three-month mark, right, when you're alone, you've lost your social gatherings and your crowd, and... Uh, and my the, crutch. <laughs> and your crutch. Um, how how were the conversations? Like, how did these conversations evolve to be able to... Is it all through the music? Was it through the writing? I started to focus uh, on writing, this writing these songs. And, uh, I mean, it was just a hard time. At the same time, Great Big Sea started to have its issues. And that was, by and large, me. So you're still, as you're going through this sobriety, playing. I'm still you're in Great Big Sea. Yeah, I'm still, great, I'm still in the band. Uh, I'm still, uh, and that, you know. I, you're probably not as much fun on stage. Uh, I tried my best to contribute to, to I mean, I, arguably I got better at many things. I got in better shape. But you know what? It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't an actor. The bus is a really, uh, the Great Big Sea bus is definitely not a sober place, you know. And uh, the fact that I sobered up made no difference in how it behaved. So it was a very stressful time. A really stress. So I had this going on and I had my business being a, a very dangerous place for me to be. And not a lot of support from within there. And I think the reason for that was because I had... Um, you know, I think they, they were, I guess they expected me to not be successful. Like me saying I was not going to drink again, they'd heard that before. Because I tried before, you know, like I kind of wasn't in total denial. I knew like the fact, I knew it was something I couldn't control. And I think they felt that way too. So eventually it would be just a matter of time before I fell off the wagon. So there wasn't a whole lot of focus on my rehabilitation or recovery. There was no support. <laughs> no, no. No, it was just like, oh, I went out. There, like, we there, yeah, there yeah. were dibs on when we think McCann's going to fall off the wagon. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. So, you know, after two years of that, then I finally said, okay, enough's enough. You know, this is not where I need, I have to, you know. And that wasn't an easy decision. But before we got to that point, I started to, uh, you know, wrestle with this and all I really know is that if I hadn't found a way to to come in to terms with what actually happened and to to try and deal with it and, and, and understand why I was drinking I wouldn't have been able to stop you know and I think that's why people fail to remain sober and uh, a, a large majority of people who are in recovery have it have relapses and i haven't had a relapse and people are you're, oh it'll definitely happen i'm like I'm, i don't think it will and i don't want to be overconfident but i you know it's the not facing the truth that is 
that ultimately you don't solve it. You can't solve it. Not that you can really solve a problem, but acknowledging it, you know, understanding why. Why? Okay, so now I under why I'm compelled to drink. Okay, now you have at least a chance of not drinking. You know? So now how are you going to deal with it? So for me, it was always, it became music. And it was funny because I never thought it would be because I, I really, if you look at the, the vast majority of the catalog, most of the Great Big Sea stuff was literally about drinking and, and pointed in that direction. But I, it's almost like I took the guitar, turned it over, put the strings on upside down, and started to play a different song. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I got to the true meaning of what it's for. Like, this is what music is for. Therapy. Ther- it, was, it, was, it was your therapy session. Absolutely. And I, again, I haven't really, other than Andre and this guitar, and my friends, like you, I don't, I, uh, I don't really see a professional therapist. I've been to a couple of AA meetings. I think they're great. Um, but people always ask me, what do I do? And I said, the answer is simple. Whatever works for you. What worked for me is, is music. Is, is what I found a way in and out of these problems, and I can be in the middle of a very hurtful place when I'm with singing like that song I just sang. I am living in that moment again, and I finish the song, and I can walk out of that room again. And every time I do that, I win. You know, I prove that I can be successful. So that's how it kind of works. But everyone's going to be different. And But I think at the core of it is acknowledging the real problem. Not what you want the problem to be or what you want to spin it to be. We live in a world of social manipulation of ourselves. We present certain versions of ourselves that are highly polished. And, you know, the best version of any person, the strongest version of any person, is exactly who you really are. And who I really am is a survivor of sexual abuse and a person who's in recovery from addiction because of it. And that sounds simple to say, but that's really hard for uh, most people to say. That, I know it because I talk to them. It's such a massive battle. And, and that's the thing is that you, you are talking to them. So when did this, your personal journey, become the journey of helping others? Because that is where you are making the biggest impact right now. You speak often on mental health issues, you're traveling for this, you're speaking um, with different groups and organizations. So how did that take on its take on its life, which I still think is your best therapy. And even though you're helping others, every time you're doing it, there's, you're healing yourself. Definitely. Um, yeah, I'm not, afra- I guess I'm not afraid to live in that, t- in my truth. I've learned how to do it. And I wouldn't do it without this guitar in my hands. And I always bring it whenever I do a speaking engagement. It's I don't have a script or anything. I just kind of have my truth. And I also have a catalog of songs. And part of what I always do is get people to sing, to prove my point. Like this works and uh, and show people the power of music. But, it, you know, it all starts with the truth. And I, I just, I, I, people started to ask me. Certainly after I became, I came out about it and was and was open to the public about it, which started back at the, I was invited to speak at a London Ontario London Recovery Breakfast. And you know what happened? A person got up. I was going to speak to, about addiction. This was mm-hmm. for the recovery community in London. And the, and I'd been open about my addiction. I just hadn't said any why. Why, right. There hadn't been a public acknowledgement. No. And this guy, Polly O'Byrne, who was uh, abused by a hockey coach, he was the opening act. He got up. He was going to say five minutes before I was going to, you know, they knew I wanted to help yourself. The record was out. It was viewed and reviewed as a as a as a as a recovery album, so this is why I was invited there. It was my first speaking engagement, 
and this guy got up and he quite frankly told the, the truth about what happened to him. And my eyes were opened. I was blown away by how honest he was and that he just said it. And what was, and he said it and he didn't catch fire. He didn't die. He said it, said it and walked off that stage and sat down right next to me. And I realized that I could say, I, I should do this. Like I, I can, and I got up and I didn't think anything of it, but I, I, I told for the first time the truth. And it was just a huge relief. It hadn't been premeditated. It hadn't thought it through. You just... I, I knew that that's something I should do. I think I thought about it, but I, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't seen somebody do it. So when I get up and I do, and I learned, so that was a huge mm -hmm. game changer. Like, it really helps if you see Did you kind of call Andrea someone. after that and just be just to, just to let you know? Yeah. The gig went a little different than I thought it was today. Yeah, I remember we were working on what I was going to say and... And what, and of course, what I did, what I actually right, what said, said. <laughs> very different. And there was fallout. That's you know that hit the news, and my parents, you know, it all came out on Twitter and stuff. So that's how I had to kind of put out those fires and actually deal with the aftermath, which was great. But it was worth it because the truth was out there. Then okay, here's what happened, guys. In case anyone was wondering, this happened, and so be it. Like that's that's that was a huge leap forward. Uh, and by doing what I do now, the fact that I'm able to get up there, the guy from Great Big Seagull will get up and speak his truth and walk off the stage. You know, if I can quit drinking, anybody can, if that guy can, you know. And uh, I think it's important for people to see that. Certainly people in mental health who have issues and addiction issues in particular, to see that that guy can, can do it and to see how. To see someone really be truthful, even though it's painful, um, that's powerful. That has an impact, and then and and I think that's why I feel like I have a sense of purpose now. I can I can help people, not like a doctor can, I don't think, but I can help people by because I'm a human being, and I and I know that everyone feels pain, and everyone avoids it. But I, what I've learned is that you can't really fix it unless you. You do it right so i just do it you did it on that stage that first time of which this guy was the you know hearing it spoken out loud and that they didn't what was his name the Polly O'Burn, yeah so he's, you, he's you, still but, out there doing it he's right but you have become the Polly O'Burn for a lot of people because you stand on stage and then you have people come up to you afterwards yeah and, and a lot of people will tell me and the they first tell time. you the, their story for the first time what Response and it always of, feels better for them. Does it feels better for them? What happens to you? Uh, it's it's always hard to hear, and it, I, it it's something you take on. But at least I have compassion for those. Like I have, I understand, and I know what it's like to say it. You know, it's really hard to say the truth. Like it's hard to say it. And you know what? You can say it all you want, and 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 for many people, they don't care what the truth is. You know, uh, my parents still struggle with with the truth like they still can't really it's not something we talk about like it's okay well let's move along people hear what they want to hear so you have to you have to face your truth for yourself and expect that you may not even be heard but you still you hear you it's still important because if you if you don't acknowledge what it really is how are you going to fix it all you're going to do is throw money at it or or Dance around the issue but and, and put Band-Aids on this flare-up and that flare-up. Get to the core of the problem, the real pain. And, uh, 
you know, I, I think in this world today, like, again, you know, we live in a world where alternate facts are a thing. This is this is how, you know, we this is a this is something we live with. Spin is everything. If you look at American politics, the truth about like what just happened with uh, Christine Blasey Ford, whether you believe her or not, and I do, um, what happened there, and how it's even even as of today, and I'm not sure when this podcast is going to happen. That was, it's that was the truth comes out, a truth exists, and two sides start at it and fight about it. You know, and it becomes a political football. So the truth today is under more duress, the actual truth, than it ever has before. And as parents, you and I know that we're dealing with a different generation. Um, but I know that the truth, there is only one truth. Like in any given circumstance, one thing is true. One fact is true. And if we can't get to what that is, and that becomes a moving target, then the solution is not achievable. So it's it's the most important thing. And it's the hardest thing to do. The reason we avoid it is because it's hard. Where do you get the greatest satisfaction now? I mean, I know there was satisfaction being up on that stage and having a good time and seeing the entire bar jumping up and down to your song. Where is your satisfaction now? I can't get no... <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I really love being in a small hall, um, you know, just singing, just being my the best version of me is on stage, and I just I want to be there with Old Brown, and I love when I'm able to light up a room, and reach out and emotionally like grab people's hearts, squeeze them a little bit, and let them go. When they come to see you, are they looking to be inspired? Are they looking, oh my God, it's Sean McCann, he's going to play a great big C song? Or are they looking to hear your story? Like, what do you anticipate? When you look at, at that audience, what do you think they're hoping to get from you? I've learned not to anticipate. Uh, I, I look at, I, I reserve the right. I always write out like a list of songs because mm -hmm. if I don't, I forget that I know any. <laughs> so I write out the list of songs that yeah. I want to sing. Yeah. Okay. And I bring them up and I lay it on stage in no particular order. And then I do what I think is going to connect most. By, and, but I, the first thing I do, and I always tell the light guy, I need to see everyone's face. So you okay, can't yeah. be black. So I get a little light and then I see. And I assess the situation. And I have so many songs that I... So you, you, you look at your crowd. You see who's in the audience. Yeah. And, and you know, I guess the difference, what I, what, what I do now is, 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 is an interactive experience. I see real power in conversation and what we're doing actually here. Uh, and I want that to be the case. And I know what the alternative is, is if I go out and just hammer it in and push my agenda at an audience. That's another way. Usually it's solved with a drummer and volume. Like you can just be that and maybe then maybe, you know, you just dumb it down. There is one message. I've been in that band and I'm done with that. I find great power when someone can be genuine. I'm most moved when I see people genuinely affected whether it be cracking them up or making them cry but i want to i want to affect people on a deeper level and that's why i say more and that's why i remain unscripted because you can't 
you can't really go out there and premeditate that. I think you have to be in the moment. You have to really be present, and that's hard to do too. But I found how to, I've, whatever reason, by acknowledging my own truth, I can let myself be vulnerable. I've learned that. Uh, and I do it every night, whether I'm speaking at a breakfast speaking mm -hmm. event or I'm doing Almond Town Hall on a Saturday night. I get there by making myself vulnerable. And that's that has an impact on people. People see that if it's real. You know, and that's the just gotta get gotta get there real. And but that's why I show up with just this. I don't have I could have a band. I don't I don't I don't need one anymore. I don't that's not the power I'm looking for. The power I'm I'm trying to get out there is from the the middle of me. And I'm trying to get to the middle of you. And I want to squeeze your heart and let it go and light you up. I want to melt that room. Uh, we've had interesting conversations. I mean, you were one of the first people I talked to when I was going through my transition. And I was kind of like, you know what, Sean? Like, this is what I'm thinking. I know exactly how it feels. You know, like, and we had these conversations. And there was a lot of talk, you know, about, you know, letting go of ego. And, uh, you know, and realizing relationships are going to change. And the people who you thought were going to be you know, a support system have not been, you know, like it's, it's, um, I think authenticity, um, is what people I think like and are drawn to in an individual. And I think the crowds appreciate that with you. I, be I believe that I, it's what I'm drawn mm -hmm. to and I think, and you are, but I, I mean, I hope, I hope that that's where we end up, but you know, the world, what seems to win a lot of the times is not authentic. And even if we know it, you know, it still works on us in many ways. Uh, but I still think it's the most important thing to be authentic. It's rare to find, and but it's within it's it's within us to be that. It's facing up to who we really are. When uh, you're not with the guitar, like, and you're in in the, I know that you run. I like when you're when you're running because I know you need the physical release also, right? Like, there's been. And you said you got in good shape and you're kind of in different in that sense. Like, what are you listening to? Like, what? It's because you're not listening to your songs. I don't listen right. to any. Um, when I like run, when, it's always outdoors. So I don't. Okay, so you, nothing. It's just you and your thoughts. The birds, Oh, wind. my God, that's killer, really. You can take that in? I need, like, <laughs> I need something pushing me. You, what's pushing you? Uh, I don't like, I, I, I literally, I, part of the running thing for me is, I don't like running indoors, so so it's always outdoors. I don't run much in the, in the winter, which is a drag, because I don't like the gym. Like, being indoors is not, I have a machine that I use at home, but I, it's all part of it. I think being in nature uh, is, is a big deal. Uh, movement is a big deal. Um, and I've learned that. From, I've met some really cool people, like you, uh, along the way. And one of them um, taught me a huge lesson. And that I, music is medicine for me, but movement is medicine for a friend of mine named Clara Hughes, who's an Olympian. And, um, you know, she's she got she to gotta keep moving. But she's just being out, out in nature... Being physical, again, is something that's, you know, as parents, it's really hard to get to get your kids to do that. You know, the digital world is so compelling, so fascinating, so seductive. But, you know, there's digital addiction is a big thing now. And, and if you talk to the counselors, what's the what's the how do you treat it? Go outdoors. So, so for me, be outdoors, be in nature. I do miss that about Newfoundland, and uh, I love Ontario is beautiful, 
but it's like every acre of land is literally spoken for. Where I come from, 90% of the province of Newfoundland is crown land. So anybody can be there, dogs off leash, in any capacity you can sleep there. And for where I lived in St. John's, which is right downtown, 10 minutes drive in any direction and you're in the middle of nowhere. And I think it's important to put yourself there every now and then. In the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. Whether that's on a kayak out in St. Lawrence or in the woods where you're just nowhere, where you can't hear a sound other than the birds and the bees and whatever else is out there. And that's why I keep getting drawn to the mountains and, and back to Newfoundland and into nature. I think it's a big, a big help to our mental uh, abilities. I don't like the screens for me are, um, it's a double-edged sword. I, I promote there, tell people that's where everyone is on Facebook. You know, and Facebook tells me my big demographic is women age 45 to 54, but it's really hard to get them to come to shows. They all comment on every post. Uh, and they're supportive, but to get them to come to the show is a big deal because Facebook is so freaking awesome, <laughs> right? <clears throat> but it's not—it's not healthy to be there all the time. It can't—you can't do on Facebook what you can do face to face. You just can't. People are gonna look at this or listen to this podcast. What—what what three things, if I can put you on the spot, do you want them to take from this about? facing adversity about living in a dark place like what what could you say to them probably the, the thing that my kids say to me at, before I go on stage whether it be speaking or playing every time they call me or text me and say one thing don't give up don't give up don't give up dad and I think you can solve a lot of problems because I'm not the smartest tool in the shed, the sharpest tool in the shed, but I didn't give up. And sheer persistence uh, can get you a long way. And I would argue that Great Big C got a long way because of persistence more than skill, you know. So don't give up is a big deal. Two, we're stronger than you think. We're pretty tough. Human beings are really tough. And the stuff we put ourselves through, literally, um, even if we just eliminate the stuff we choose to do that's negative, whether that be diet or fitness or, you know, our work habits, you know, we, we've, we already, without even realizing, you look at your any given life, you probably survived more than you think. You know, we're tougher than we know. We're very much strong. We're strong. And uh, if we forget that, that's when we falter. So believe that you're strong because you are. And because, you know, the other thing would be just you have to do the work. And the work is always truth-based. If it's some kind of fiction, you're going to be off target and you're going to waste your energy. So make sure your, your target is the truth, the real truth. Because then you'll be successful. Then the work begins. I haven't even, I don't even know what time. Veronica hasn't even let me know. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, like two hours. I didn't even look over. I'm like, I don't even want to know what time it is. I'm going to let you finish. Just just sing us out. I'm, I'll just sing us for a second. I just want to say, oh, my gosh. I don't even think I mentioned what episode we're at. I was just so into You started singing a guitar. So 
This was episode 36 of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. What? I'm not number one? <laughs> you, I'm number 36. You knew, about, you knew about Living Your Life with Leanne Lang before it was even conceptualized. Do you remember that? Kind of sitting around a table going, what am I going to do? Uh, please like, subscribe, uh, any comments, uh, let your friends know about the podcast. It's so nice to see it growing. Um, and it's persistence, right? Just keep on people. But I'm realizing as I'm looking in this world, um, sometimes you need some help from people on the outside. So if you can like or subscribe, uh, let people know about the podcast, that would be incredibly great. And of course, thanks to Extension Marketing uh, for always taking on the role as uh, being a proud sponsor and supporter of this. Sean McCann, I do love you dearly. I love your family. I can't wait for the next uh, little round table at one of our kitchen tables. What song are you going to leave us with? I'm going to sing this one here because I, I know the path you're on. I know, and you're on the right one. And I know you're going to be successful because we're made of more than blood and bone. We're made of love. You know I love you. You know I care. You know I miss you. I'm not there I carry you with me everywhere I go because I love you and now you know I climb the mountains I cross the sea the lonesome valley and the Grand Prairie I carry you with me for all to see because I love you Leanne you can count on me I've done so many miles alone I've learned so many things I should have known I let myself get let off track But you keep me coming back You know I love you You know I care no, I'll miss you when you're not there. I carry you with me everywhere I go because I love you. I am not alone. Thanks for having me on your show. I remember that song. Thanks, Sean. You looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. 
Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.